Was she trying to go home with the drum machine? <laughs> he talked her out of it. <laughs> Careful, that drum machine has the clap. <laughs> that's got to be our cold oh, open. Oh, dude, that's, that is brilliant. <laughs> Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and tonight I am joined by... Craig and Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados. We're here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of us, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. It's like I was just in a random podcast app the other day. Like all of our proliferation has been successful and we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. So sweet. I think we're even on Alexa. I never tried that. I'll try Alexa later. Alexa, play U3P. You, what, what are we called? What's our name? Craig, do you know the name of our fucking show? <laughs> Alexa. Be dyslexic. Yeah, there's Alexa and then there's dyslexa. So I guess we'll get into the show tonight. Lee, what have you been up to, man? Messing around in the studio. Finished my Todd Rundgren song. Hey. Oh, nice. Doing the Rundgren song was a learning experience. and How so? There's one immutable truth that it's hard to turn a sappy love song into a heavy rock song. Whatever you want to say about this song, it's a sappy love song. Now, what made you want to do that? The original version, which came out in 72, is a mix of acoustic and electric. But in my head, I've always heard it as more of a heavier rock song. And so I really just wanted to try it and see what it sounded like. Here, let me play a clip of it for you. But first, let's do the legal piece. I do not own the rights to this song. This is Couldn't I Just Tell You by Todd Rundgren. I did this cover version of it just for myself. But if I decide to publish it, I will reach out to. Bearsville and Warner Brothers to get permission. song but it sounds great in that way it actually reminds me a lot of ghost i think if i'd ever want to finish this song out i would go get a different vocalist Mm -hmm. it's just way out of range for me i had to bring it down a whole step just to sing on it i just don't have that range anymore yeah when you transpose it down do you just press the transpose button or did you actually play it in a different key i picked it out in the original key 
Mm-hmm. Found a couple of guitar tabs that were really helpful for the intro section. Uh-huh. And then I just picked the rest of it out by ear on a keyboard. And then everything's a virtual instrument except for vocals. And there's a buried keyboard line in there too. But it's all saved in MIDI. So it was pretty easy just to transpose it down a whole step. That sounded really sounded great. great. Sounded great awesome. Job. Well, thanks. Your singing voice reminds me of somebody and it's going to come to me. Really? You know what it might be is it just might be your other album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what are you up to, Craig? Boy, I can't hold a candle to that. I think I'm going to get a haircut. Um, <laughs> COVID goals. It's, it's been about six months. It's about time. But aside from all that, I've been taking this eight-week jazz piano class, nice. which uh, is fascinating. I'm about halfway through, and it's taught by this guy who came to jazz from classical. He's got a degree in classical music, and he just decided, you know, this is horrible. I hate this shit. I'm going to learn jazz. So he did that. He's very, been very successful. He owns a jazz club in Texas. The way that he teaches is great because it's exactly at my level. It's minimal theory, very focused on getting you playing quickly with a lot of tricks. None of this, okay, here's every mode of the major scale. Right. Here's a great scale that you can play along with these seven chords that make up some large percentage of jazz standards right. and go to town. I'm digging it. How are you, Tony? So one of my hashtag COVID goals is I got into this weird like side hobby just to like keep my hands busy in the evening. I would uh, go build Lego sets. <gasps> I was building cars for a while. I've gotten back into it now as an adult in my 40s because of COVID. And like I learned there's a whole Lego culture I ne- was never aware of. But I had worked my way up from like the little $20 sets and $30 sets up to like for Christmas, my wife bought me a set that was $350. Now, do they come with plans or are you doing it and just kind of riffing on it? It's the- got plans. Actually, the one I'm working on right now is the big blue Bugatti set. The thing I've been working on uh, that's more music related is I had this idea mid-December to do like this offshoot thing of the show. And we kind of batted the idea around and calling them UP3 show bootlegs. The idea is like one of us will have something that's more close to our heart and run with it. And so the one I've been working on is focused on Mike Portnoy's 12-step suite that he did with Dream Theater, going through and breaking down all of the lyrics and connecting them back to official 12-step literature. Mike's history with 12-step programs is pretty storied and well-known, and I won't retell that here, but he went through a specific program. He went through AA. A lot of people make the assumption that AA is 12-step, but there are a lot of other 12-step programs as well. And so kind of my goal with this is to show other people who may be struggling with addiction or going through a 12-step program how they can resonate with that um, suite of songs as well. Very cool. That's awesome. Looking forward to that. And so as we always do, uh, what have you guys been listening to? So Lee, I'll start with you again. Um, The new Kairos EP, Four of Fear, is amazing. Um, there's a song on it called Ace's Middle that is just incredible. It's like being inside the head of a manic poker player listening to Prague while he's playing poker. And it's just, it's unbelievable. I just, everything this band does, I'm really impressed with. That's awesome. How about you, Craig? You know, I, I've really been uh, fanboying on the Lady Gaga version of the Star Spangled Banner. She did great. I'm confident I have never heard Lady Gaga do a thing in my life. and. You know, she came out and then she just went into this thing and just fucking ripped it. Yeah. Now, what's amazing about it is there's a couple of YouTubes 
where these uh, music wizards trained in the music theory tear apart the arrangement, not in a bad way, but dissect it. And it's fascinating. (laughs) There's like these uh, kind of evolving time signatures. She's singing in one time while the arrangement is going in a different time. And then it catches Mm -hmm. up. She riffs just a little bit. So it's turned into this little cottage industry of people analyzing the Lady Gaga arrangement or the performance of Star Spangled Banner. Really digging on that. Then the other thing is, um, I started listening to Jem Godfrey's podcast that you recommended, Lee. Yeah. As a keyboard player, it was like a combination of phone sex and <laughs> getting to hang out in the back room at the uh, music store, you know, just listening to him talk keyboards with keyboard players. Really uh, enjoying the heck out of that. Cool. Nice. I, I need to remember to subscribe to that. I don't like to stay on top of those things, and I just forgot. Yeah, it's called the Voltage Controllers. Yeah, there's like three episodes. How long are they? They're not quite an hour. Okay, so they're kind of like our show. Almost as good. He hasn't done any more, so I think he's in the middle of mixing an album. Wouldn't that be nice? Ooh. What about you, Tony? I was kind of late to the boat on this, but I'm glad I'm caught up. So about three weeks ago, um, I had to go run some errands, and I stopped by a local favorite record shop of mine. So shout out to Angelo's on Broadway in Denver. I went in specifically looking for a few records, and I picked up the Ocean Collective's Phanerozoic 1 and 2. I'm loving the hell out of those, so thank you very much, Lee, for bringing those to my attention. I've got the old ones, the original ones. Like I'm really looking forward to when I get around to listening to Heliocentric. It's just amazing. Um, But as I always do, I take a risk on something. And my Risk album this time is by an Australian metal band called Northlane. Specifically, it's the album Singularity. Now, this band, their first couple of records were more thrash metal, power metal. They eventually went in the prog metal vein. I haven't actually gotten to there yet, but if you're interested in listening to this band and you want to hear where they're going and and get some really good prog metal vibes out of it, listen to the instrumental version of Singularity. This album is fabulous they've got a lot of growler vocals and scratchy vocals on it that are kind of par for the course with that style of metal take those out and everyone else could stand alone it's an amazing band cool i north can't lane. recommend them highly enough so it's north lane the album singularity from 2013 we also like to do like news updates so what are some news or new releases that you guys know about lee maybe i'll start with you again You know, LTE3, Liquid Tension Experiment, we are all still hugely anticipating that album in May. They just released a teaser uh, song and video called Passage of Time that is great. I've been shocked to find out Kayak is releasing a new album. Nice. I did see that. That band has been around forever and ever. I was listening to that, and that's kind of surprising me. Nurse, the band out of uh, Sweden, is doing a new album. They don't have a date yet, but they are saying coming soon. And then I have been listening to preview from a band called Turbulence. The album is Frontal, and it's a Lebanese prog metal band. And the song that they're teasing right now is called Madness Unforeseen. And I am really enjoying this song. I want to pre-order this album and see what that band does. So I really have thought, after I found the band Akrasikauta, which is a thrash metal band, they really sold me on the that the Middle East has a lot to say yeah. in the rock and metal and prog vein. And, and I can't wait until maybe geopolitics settle down enough that we can get those artists yeah. to produce some stuff. I agree with that. 
Awesome. What about you, Craig? You got any news? Yeah, one thing that caught my eye, uh, I read about uh, Mike Oldfield is going to perform Tubular Bells live in London this summer, taking a risk that Hmm. live music will be a thing. I've been a Mike Oldfield fan from the beginning. I saw him live at a a not very large venue in Philly in college. There's a number of uh, live DVDs out there. Most of them are up on YouTube right now. And he just puts together these stellar, huge groups of musicians that perform his work. I'm excited about that. I close to zero chance I will see it live, but there might be some way to stream it. I don't know what the plan is, but it was just a teaser I saw the other day. Cool. The big one for me is, and I think it's taken us three episodes to figure out versions of Transatlantic. I ended up pre-ordering the Absolute Edition. Okay. And this is expensive and has stuff in it that I don't actually want. It has the LPs. I don't really care about having vinyl in my collection. When I started looking at it, I definitely wanted both versions of the album. So they're kind of curated experiences is what they ended up doing. So as I understand it, the big two-disc version called Forevermore is actually curated by Portnoy. Think about like if you're watching a documentary, then this is this album as told by Mike Portnoy. And then the other album, the the trimmed down version that they call The Breath of Life, is curated by Neil Morse. So it's basically the same album as told by Neil Morse. To get the things I wanted, I had to order the vinyl. And that's kind of my big pain in the ass with this album, is that I don't like that. When you say curated, is that different than it being produced by... Yes, there are different versions of the tracks with sometimes different lyrics, Mm -hmm. different people singing the lyrics, different arrangements. So even though on the two versions, a song may have the same title, as I understand it, they may be completely different arrangements with different lyrics. That's what I understand, too. Yeah, why why does that bug you? Previously, when I've experienced this, the expanded edition will just be more, Mm -hmm. but not different. If you consider yourself a tried and true transatlantic fan... Mm-hmm. You're going to buy both, mm-hmm. not one big deluxe edition. So the difference here, I think the price points go $19.99 for the Neil Morse CD. And then I think it goes to $49.99 for the two. And then up to $150 for this big deluxe edition that has everything. Mm-hmm. And you don't get any of the extra artwork if you get the $50 or the $20. But in the past, when I've had these deluxe editions, it was the difference between spending $19.99 on the basic edition and $24.99 on the deluxe edition. Right. A $5 difference, not a $100 spread. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like it's pr- the pricing's out of whack. See, this is why I said in our last episode when we talked about this, it's feeling a little bit like Transatlantic Inc., kind sure. of the same way that there's Dream Theater Inc., and that bugs me, like they're milking and taking advantage of the fandom. Yep, mm-hmm. And kind of tying Transatlantic to LTE, and I'm challenging all the listeners and you guys as well, listen to the new LTE single and listen to it kind of with your Transatlantic ears on and your Dream Theater ears on. I'm picking up motifs of the whirlwind. I'm picking up some motifs of what I think sounds like Octavarium, just in like some of the way Petrucci plays some passages and the way Rudess plays some passages, mm-hmm. um, even some of the drum fills um, from Portnoy. And I don't know if that's on purpose as an homage to these other bands that these people come from. Add us on U- at UP3 show, or if you just, if you're only pissed off at me, just at me at Real Tony McD on Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm.
All right, guys. So as we get into tonight's episode, we're going to be talking about the impact of keyboards in Prague in general. And, you know, I am really, really excited for this episode because you guys are both keyboard players and accomplished in your own right. And I am really looking forward to hopefully asking good questions and learning a whole heck of a lot. Get us started and provide us a jumping off point. Lee, why don't you take us back to the beginning of all of this and uh, maybe start at the beginning of Keys in Prague and we'll go from there. Sure. Well, we might as well just go back to the earliest keyboard, all the way back to the third century with the pipe organ. It features heavily in early classical music, a lot of Bach pieces written for organ, and a lot of that classical feel and that virtuosity will come forward into a lot of the early prog bands using organ like, yes, Keith Emerson with ELP. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're going to do an eight or 10 or 12 minute song, and our early prog pioneers wanted to mix it up, so they added some organ. Well, starting with organ, let's just go right to one of the masterworks in Prague. This is Rick Wakeman from the album Close to the Edge by Yes. This is the solid time movement. That's hilarious. That's exactly the same clip that I made. Is it really? <laughs> Famous organ track, but I also really like the way he brings in the synthesizer there at the end. I was just going to say that, man. That's I think I trash-talked Rick Wakeman a little bit a couple weeks ago. That's the freaking genius of Rick Wakeman is he's playing a pipe organ. It's a real pipe organ. I think I read it somewhere in Scotland in some church. And then just seamlessly melds in some beautiful synth track. So in those early days, we have a lot of virtuosos. Do you think that this central role of key-based instruments comes from that kind of classical role of piano in music and that that's where they were coming from like they were all classically trained as pianists and then it goes from there absolutely keith emerson classically trained pianist tony bangs classically trained pianist rick wegman carrie menier yeah here's another great example this is keith emerson from elp from their very first album this is knife edge There are so many great things you can say about that track. I really like the very overdriven organ sound. That whole little solo section at the back end of that is a Bach fugue. You look through the Emerson, Lake and Palmer albums, and there are classical references all over the place. Mm -hmm. And not just early classical composers like we just heard with that Bach fugue piece, but also what you might call neoclassical with composers like Aaron Copland, Holst from the Planets. Mazorski pictures at an exhibition. What I think is interesting about that first Emerson Lincoln Palmer album is it's 99% piano and organ. And while they were recording that album is when someone brought a Moog in for Keith Emerson to fart with. And he's like, well, should I have written anything? I'll just play a solo during Lucky Man. That square wave solo that we all know and love uh, was like the first take of Keith's first exposure to a Moog. Wow. 
synthesizers are just getting started and you're still dealing with more of the traditional instruments. So organ and obviously piano plays a heavy role. Right. And we'll let Eddie Jobson, a prog virtuoso, take us on a transition from the organ to the piano. This is Carrying No Cross from the UK album Danger Money. So I'm interested in your take here about what are these artists doing with these traditional, I guess is the word I'll use here, instruments that makes what they're doing in Prague a natural extension of their classical training. What are they doing that's making it Prague and not just like a modern interpretation of a classical playing style? That's a great question. I think number one would be classical is actually very strict. When you take composition and theory, you learn all these voicings and how they move, and you can only use certain keys and only certain modulations. You can bring that classical technique with you, but now you have the flexibility to use different sounds, different modes, different key signatures. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I think is what we heard out of that UK piece is the virtuosity. You get a lot of flexibility. So not only was he really stretching out on the keyboard, he was also speeding up the meter in the solo as he went. There's just a lot more flexibility than you would have playing a standard classical piece. I think, Lee, you used the word foundational. But would you say that the keys were forming the backbone of what these bands and these songs were formed from? Yeah, it kind of depends on the artist. Look at Genesis. Absolutely. Look at King Crimson? Nah, probably not. And part of that is, you know, who's the brains behind the operation? Fair. Uh, you know, the brains behind the operation is Robert Fripp, guitar player of Second to None. So it kind of depends, really. Where do we go after we have that more pure piano and organ sound? I think it's interesting when electric piano really started to happen, even though it happened in the 50s, you know, the Fender Rhodes really changed a lot of things early on. Jazz fusion was big in the 70s and the 80s. And a lot of our prog heroes skirt jazz fusion to prog rock. And I'm thinking Jeff Beck, for instance. This is the uh, outro of Freeway Jam from Jeff Beck Blow by Blow by Max Middleton. Love Max Middleton. Oh, man, he crushes that. And you know what's interesting about electric pianos is we tend to talk a lot about all the crazy stuff happening with synthesizers and all the innovations. There is a ton of innovation in the electric piano world as well. What I just played there is the very quintessential, I'm going to say it's a Fender Rhodes, it might not be, um, but it's the hammer hitting a tine in a small cabinet, very distinguishable sound. So I'm going to expose my ignorance a little bit here. Yeah, sure. And I know how traditional pianos work, but maybe for the listeners as well, what is the difference with an electric piano here? Instead of a string, it's a little metal tube. And so is that being picked up by some other kind of... It's got a pickup next to it. 
has a pickup. Okay. But it's like hitting a tuning fork, basically. Gotcha. Okay. So one of the things that happened um, around uh, late 70s, probably, um, they came out with like this stage piano that just had much larger tines and it had a very distinguishable sound. And you ended up seeing these on stage all over the place. So this is a clip from Jethro Tull's live album, Bursting Out, and it's the uh, intro to Locomotive Breath. <laughs> very distinctive other sound so you know at the same time all these new synthesizers are happening you know the electric piano people aren't standing still either right. the problem is electric pianos weighed eight gajillion tons fender Rhodes itself that was about what 70 pounds something like that yeah. uh these stage grands i think they were over 100 pounds they and they were triangles they like little tiny grand pianos they do have pickups, but if you just stick a Rhodes in the middle of a floor with no hookup, no power, and you play it, you, you will still get a sound out you of it. You can hear it. Yeah, it's really cool. It's still an acoustic instrument. I never really distinguished an electric piano from a traditional piano, and it always just sounded like they were better in tune than your normal piano. It still sounds like a piano to me. And part of that is the nuance, because that's it's how it's played. Right. That's very interesting to me. You have to think like a pianist on one, too. A synth feels like a piece of plastic mm-hmm. right? when you're sitting there doing runs. You can actually get to be really damn fast on a synthesizer, and then you go take that to an electric piano or a piano. You are not as fast as you think you are. Yeah, you trip over your fingers. Is that because of the key weight? Yes, exactly. Okay. And Tony, you just said something interesting that I feel the need to correct for our audience. You said that you're not nearly the music geek that we are. You're you're a different kind of a music geek. You are absolutely, you have the same magnitude. Well, I mean, on this level, and this is like where I'm really learning a lot, and I love this. You just have to realize you're talking to two very old keyboard players. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's, old it's, is, is kind of the operative Yeah, old is the operative thing. I had a Moog satellite synthesizer. Where do bands in the prog movement go from there then? I'm going to put clavinet and harpsichords in the same bucket. Now, harpsichords go way back. I don't know how geeky we want to get here. Do it. Say it. The original quote-unquote piano was actually more like a harpsichord, but it was known as the forte piano, which in Italian means loud, soft, which is one of the stupidest names you've ever heard. (laughs) So when they developed the piano that you think of today, the modern piano, they actually called that the piano forte. Mm-hmm. which is means soft loud. So it's like one guy went, oh yeah, loud, soft, fuck you. We're going to name this soft loud. Soft loud While it's snarky, I think it's actually an important part of the development here. Well, if you think about it, synthesizer development today is no different than it was in the 1700s. People were like, you know, I wish I can get some dynamics out of this fucking harpsichord. And soft loud guy said, oh, I got just the thing. And then loud, soft guy said, fuck you, mine's better. Yeah. That's much like, you know, Roland and Yamaha and Korg going at it. Yeah. So the harpsichord actually predates the piano, not by a lot, but it does. And really the difference is you think about instead of hitting a string with a felt hammer, now you're plucking a string with the keyboard inside a sound box. And the best examples of that, I'm going to play a Gentle Giant clip. And by the way, Gentle Giant is about the only band that can pull off playing a harpsichord on a product. Yes, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. 
that is the song Freehand from the album Freehand, and of course that is Carrie Minier. It's actually a clavinet. The line between a harpsichord and a clavinet is, is really kind of blurry. At this point, it's an electronic sound anyway. But that really sharp kind of plucked sound is yeah. kind of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things I think about keyboard development is even though we're making synthesizers, they're always trying to emulate a piano or some hammered, very fast attack sound. Because I don't know if you remember, Lee, back in the 80s, the Yamaha DX7 was like the shit kind of defined a decade's worth of bad music. Yes. So I actually have a clip of that and it's a Chicago song. So it's going to be awful. So Yamaha should have lost their license, being allowed to make synthesizers for pretty much destroying a decade's worth of music. Anyway, the point is that kind of tiny T-I-N-E-Y, because mm-hmm. the thing you're hitting is, it's called a tine. That sound, it's the quintessential Yamaha DX7 sound, and it's in so many songs in the 70s. And my point is, there seems to be an appetite for people to hear those kind of sounds. Every synthesizer I ever had has that sound in it. For me growing up, just starting to become a kid that could recognize music like that in the 80s, that was the quintessential sound that I was hearing Mm -hmm. from keys, whether it was pop music, even some of the fusion stuff that my dad was listening to. And so a question that I have for you guys, and maybe this goes back to how I come back to production in the industry. Did someone in the industry just have a love affair with that and they signed a bunch of bands that did that? Or did someone have a backroom deal with Yamaha and they gave it to every band they signed? That's actually not too far off. Early on, when low-cost synths started becoming common, Yamaha and the other synth manufacturers would literally hand them out to bands so that they could get a credit on the album and get their sound out. The DX series keyboards used FM synthesis, and without going into a whole nerdy rat hole, that's one thing FM synthesis does really well is those bell-tine kind of sounds. Yeah. So one of the other things that 80s music is really known for is being, and I'm going to put this in the biggest air quotes on a podcast ever, very sci-fi. The 80s were really known for like neon and sci-fi in the future. And do you think that that sounded to some people like the sound of music from the future? No, because I got a great sample of something that does. Awesome. It's a band called Art of Noise. These guys did music with some of the big iron samplers. heard that that's the intro music to crocodile dundee too is it it's also like (laughs) max headroom that sound like that is it sounds like it's trying to be like outback aboriginal like pseudo didgeridoo on a keyboard thing played on a fair light which was a competitor to the waveframe and a competitor to the synclavier those were like the original digital audio workstations which wasn't just a piece of software on your laptop They were large boxes with lots and lots of hardware. 
they didn't really bill it as music from the future, you know, like the dip and dots of music. And this is the dip, <laughs> the dip and dots, dip of, and music. dots of music. <laughs> You know, they start in the 60s and 70s, but by the time you start hitting the 80s and 90s, where synths have started to mature, you can make them sound like a ton of different things. Mm-hmm. This is an example from the album Raw by Utopia, and this is Roger Powell on a synthesizer. This is supposed to represent a warrior that's doing battle with a dragon. Now that is amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. That is. I love that. You know, that reminds me so much of what I hear out of Eric Norlander and part of the reason why I love his playing so much. Synths are really starting to mature as a keyboard sound. That's where people really start to jump in there and, and take it forward. And I think Roger Powell was one of those guys. So he worked at Waveframe in Boulder for a little while. I met him a couple of times. Super nice guy. All right, here's one more from Frank Zappa off the album Jazz from Hell. Uh, The track's called Night School. And what's interesting about this is he recorded the entire album on the synclavier. He wrote the music uh, not for musicians. He wrote the music for the instrument. Uh, The synclavier, again, was the digital audio workstation or one of the big three of the day. You know, he had gotten to the point where he wanted to try just writing and not worrying about the limitations of musicians, uh, such as they might be. The album went on to win a Grammy. So anyway, this is uh, Night School. And so who were the personalities that were leading from the front? Well, for synths, you've got to pick up uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Absolutely. That Bob Moog synthesizer sound, as Craig pointed out, they literally ran a truck over to Keith Emerson's house (laughs) and unloaded this giant, I think it was almost like a 500-pound instrument. The thing was a monster. You had to use patch cords to plug it in. So here's a little bit of keyboard trivia. When you change the sound on your synthesizer today, it's called changing a patch. But where that comes from is back in the day with modular synthesizers, you had a bunch of cables and you patched one module to another with cables, much like how they used to patch you through on the telephone. Mm -hmm. And we've been having fun talking about the noises of the future out of synths, but synths can also be just a beautiful melodic sound in the hands of a master. Craig talked about that square wave Moog solo sound. Keith Emerson solos. This is a little bit later, but this is the end of a song called Farewell to Arms by ELP off the album Black Moon.
And he was one of the first keyboard players that took a synth on the road. That's interesting. When I saw them at a big show at a, an arena, they lowered it with some crane-like apparatus. I mean, it lowered down from the rafters onto the stage, and it was a monster, and it was so cool. So some of these early instruments that we're talking about, how did that impact touring? Because like now you see people with keyboards, and it's just like a keyboard and a stand, and they're good. But what was going on back then with these bigger instruments? Did that inhibit touring? Well, let's just acknowledge that ELP and Keith Emerson, that's the exception to the rule. From the beginning, they're set up as the giant arena tour with uh, semis and cranes and the whole nine yards. But if you're starting to talk about more like a band like UK or Gentle Giant or somebody like that, that you would see more at a standard theater kind of setting. And the keyboard setups for those kind of bands are really going to be keyboard sitting on top of keyboard on top of keyboard. You might have a, a B3 underneath, electric pianos on top, synths on top of that. So that's exactly right. Keith Emerson, uh, he was an exception. Uh, not a lot of people were playing giant modular synthesizers. It was more like almost music research and universities and things like that. What you see now are almost exclusively wavetable synths. They're essentially a cross between a sampler and a synthesizer. You can get so many sounds inside those things. And you can also have sound modules and racks off stage. And that's how you get the modern single kind of Jordan Rudis setup you see now. Well, even before that, though, I'm in, I'm interested in, like, how did traditional piano or electric piano or harpsichord or any of that, how was that impacted? Like, if I was a band and I had a piano piece, was I depending that the house is going to have a piano I can play and that it's tuned well? No, you carried a piano with you. Yeah, it's, it's rare that you can dictate that a piano is going to be there. Right. And you don't know if it's in tune. You don't know if it's an mm-hmm. upright. You don't know if it's a grand. I mean, you don't know how to mic it. Yeah, when you unload the piano off off the truck, first thing you're going to do once it's set up is tune it. The difficulty in moving the instrument, did that inhibit touring and make these studio musicians more? Jethro Tull would tour with something that was a reasonable facsimile to a piano. They'd play the piano in the studio, but touring, they would not move a piano. They would move electric piano. Okay. I can tell you when I was playing in bar bands in the 70s and 80s, we used to be on the road with a C3. And those things are heavy as shit. And we used to have that and a Leslie. A real Leslie is a pair of contour rotating speakers that are mounted inside this big wooden cabinet. Horn on the top for high frequencies and a speaker with a drum on the bottom facing out for mid to low frequencies. And then with a little foot switch, you can control whether it rotates fast or slow. Hammond organs use tone wheels, which is, that's kind of geeky, but... It's a great YouTube rat hole to go down, though. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. The tone wheels make the size of an organ a little more manageable because now you don't need pipes or reeds to make sound. What went along with that is a rotating speaker, and the most popular one was a Leslie. And some of those classic um, key organ sounds are like a Hammond B3 with a Leslie. This is from UK. It's a song called Night After Night. So that's a very distinctive sound, and that comes to really dominate a lot of, not just prog rock, but just straight rock. That sound is so unique. Mm -hmm. 
I know Craig and I both love it equally because you get in there and play with the draw bars and get the different sounds out of it. You could even make it percussive if you wanted to. Sure. And it'll punch through is the other thing. It's it's in its own audio range. So Keith Emerson is really key with that. Um, that's Eddie Jobson from UK. But to finish that thought, Tony, yeah, you just hauled this stuff around. It, it's gotten a little bit better because now you're dealing with organs with tone wheels and electric pianos instead of a full grand. Um, but you've got to put the investment into hauling it around and get the roadies with the backs to lift it. Dude, you guys are blowing my mind here on all of this. As I think about this, though, I'm wondering, like, do you guys have thoughts on how this impacted Prague? Did that spin out into other subgenres and things like that? One of the uh, subgenres that kind of happened, and it's still kind of a thing. It's a genre that I, I really enjoy, and it's got a lot of different names. One of them is Jazz Fusion. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite bands of the time was a band called Brand X, started by a keyboard player named Robin Lumley, I believe, and a drummer named Phil Collins, who uh, was cheating on Tony Banks. Who's Phil Collins? Phil Collins. He's a drummer. I don't know. Has he ever done anything good? Uh, He was in Oliver when he was a kid. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, Brand X is a freaking awesome band. Uh, Interesting thing about Brand X, they die and get reborn frequently. And uh, on the last cruise that Lee and I were on, they showed up. And I think, Lee, I don't think you knew who they were at the time. You know, I'd heard the name, but that's really the first time I had ever sat and listened to them play. Yeah, and I'm and I'm like Lee, you got to come see Brand X. Anyway, here's a sampling of some Robin Lumley keyboard from back in the day. That super long delay is a really interesting effect on that synth. Yeah, I know. I was noticing that too. I wonder, is that part of the sample in the synth or is that like something that, like a reverb effect they're doing elsewhere, I wonder? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's reverb. I'm pretty sure it's a mini Moog. So it's all outboard effects. You know, what's cool about Brand X and a lot of these other jazz fusion bands of the day, like Spyro Gyra and Yellow Jackets Mm -hmm. and Jeff Lorber, a lot of those bands, keyboards have equal billing Whereas in a lot of the other Prague bands that we talk about, keyboards are second fiddle. Brand X, the keyboard is just as important as the guitar. And in fact, the bass is just as important as everything else. You don't really notice that a lot in the metal side of things. I'm thinking about that sample where like the keyboard sounded like a keyboard, but I know in other subgenres, they manipulate these synths especially, but keys in general, like a back of the house kind of instrument, for lack of a better word, in some they're front and center. And how do you guys think that all that plays out? In a genre like progressive jazz, I think keys are getting equal billing to the other instruments. And I think in prog rock, keys show up, maybe not 50-50 with guitar, but pretty close. And there's a lot of prog rock bands where keys are front and center, bands like Frost and Spock's Beard. Mm-hmm. I think keys in prog metal are getting a similar amount of time as they do in prog rock. But in prog metal, sometimes the keys can really be hidden and hard to find. For me, keyboardists in prog metal have to fit a dual role. The first is just a regular keyboard line like we've been hearing. So Jordan Root is doing a piano solo. But there is also the second role where the keys are supposed to fit this distorted sound that is often a guitar sound, but now it could be a keyboard or a guitar. 
and it's hard to distinguish which is which. So let me give you an example from Dream Theater from the album Systematic Chaos. This is In the Presence of Enemies. On the back end of that, you can hear Jordan Rudis doing a regular synth solo. But the front part of that is Jordan Rudis and John Petrucci doing unison lines, sometimes in harmony. But it's hard to tell who's playing what line and whether that's a distorted synth or distorted guitar. Yep. And here's another quick example of the same thing. That's Diego Tejeda from Haken playing the intro to The Endless Knot. And I think that's one of the things about prog metal is you're expected to kind of fit that really heavy, distorted kind of sound. There isn't a lot of room for clean sound. I think the one exception is Jordan Rudis in Dream Theater because he also does a lot of piano stuff where it is just a piano. But for a lot of prog metal, you can't tell the difference between instruments because of the timber and the tonality and the way they're tuned. Yeah, I'm going to make a reference here. And folks, listeners, if you don't catch the reference, go back and listen to the prog metal episode but do you think that is to try and keep the keys almost like do a gent style keying so that it kind of matches up with the guitar that's a really interesting comment i hadn't really thought about it that way it might be you know you guys are the prog metal heads much more than i am i i kind of wrestle with that whole keyboard sounds like the guitar so i ask myself why bother why not just have another guitar or why isn't the keyboard player doing something else Well, again, there are places for the keys to stand out. Don't get me wrong. But those really super complex unison and simple harmony lines are pretty exclusive to prog metal. And in that case, I think it's really valuable for the key to match that same distorted sound. And I have no idea if this is really going to hold water. So I'm just going to throw it out there. So, you know, a very common guitar tuning in metal in general, but especially in prog metal, is drop D tuning on your guitar. Maybe the rest of the guitar needed to play uptone, and they're using the keyboard to get kind of that drop D sound to the point of not replicating it a guitar, but almost like follow the guitar line and fill out the sound a little more than a guitar could do on its own. Mm-hmm. They're not a prog band at all, but I'm going to make a reference to something the band Slipknot said years ago because they have tons of percussion in their sound. They always refer to their sound as a wall of sound. Phil Spector died today, by I was the just going to say, speaking of that, Phil Spector died today. <laughs> I swear I was just going to say that. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. And I wonder if that's what these prog metal bands are trying to do by filling in with bass and keys and guitar and drums is like, get that wall of sound effect, but it's still highly technical and that makes it prog. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. I can tell you, having written a number of rock songs, if I was writing a keyboard dominant song... I would not feel constrained. I could pick the best key signature that would fit the song. But if I was writing a guitar-dominant song, I would almost always try to choose keys that match the open strings, so D, A, E, because it always sounded better. It's easy for a guitarist to let those strings ring during chords. I don't know if I answered your question, but... um, No, I mean, I I don't know if there is an answer to that question. I think it's more of an observation and just something to chew on. And again, listeners, if you guys are totally think i'm an idiot here just dm me on twitter i can handle it it's an unvarnished observation it is it's an unvarnished opinion that's why you're here and so if you don't like it 
I, th- I think Mr. Rogers still has a podcast. If not, join us on Patreon. <laughs> and then you can tell us we, can, we can be are. bought. We'll 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 tone it down for a price. Lee, talk about more about your experience playing and being in a band because you were just mentioning how you wrote. Yeah, and I'm just wondering, like, what your experience was being a pianist in a band and and how that affected things. Well, I can tell you from experience, having been in a few bands and especially being on the road, there's a few reasons why I think bands pick guitar before they pick keyboards. And one is, we just brought it up, they are heavy as shit. At least back when Craig and I were doing it, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you really had to carry around a Rhodes or a B3. And they were monsters. They were the heaviest thing we hauled around except for the PA speakers. And the second thing I'll say is, keyboards are not a visual instrument. If you think about the way bands are set up, you're always watching the back of a keyboard. You're not watching the guy's hands unless you're sitting off to the side of the stage. There are some bands that will try to set up the keyboard sideways, so at least you get a visualization of the keyboard a little bit. And Jordan Rudess is a good... And I was just going to say, and what Jordan Rudess does now, uh, one of the Dream Theater fans built him that tilting, rotating platform. And so now he can literally tilt the keyboard out so you can watch what he's doing. But he's probably one of the only people doing it. Yeah. The only other person I can think of that sets their keyboards up so you actually see the keys is Jeff Downs, if you guys have seen mm-hmm. Yes lately. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then he's playing with his back to you. So it's really odd. I mean, there is no easy way to set up. Right. Either you see a space or you see the keys, you know? It's like watching the news. You're watching a keyboard player and you're watching the guy. That's interesting. Liberace actually would take a mirror mm-hmm. and hang it from the ceiling at 45 degrees so people could watch his hands. And that was like the only way you could get it set up so you could watch his hands, you know, and watch him smiling. And the By the way, that dude that could shit. play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. he's, he was, it's underrated. And, and you're also, you're attached to this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you will see Ryo Okamoto or people like that, you know, jumping from behind, but their hands are literally tethered to something in front of them. Right. It's not like a guitar where you can run around and be on different sides of the stage and do windmills, Pete Townsend kind of stuff. Lee, did you ever play a keytar? I never did play uh, like a portable keyboard. I mean, I know people do them, but... Yeah, we do. We did. Did you? Absolutely. What was that like? It was fun. <laughs> did you do it wireless or did you have a patch cord? No, no. This is back in the 80s. There was no wireless. Okay. Uh, we just had a really, really long MIDI cable uh, that nice. liked to fall out and a shitload of batteries. You know, I, I like your your comment about um, arrangement of the instrument because, you know, it makes me think of when I go to the Arion shows in Holland, a big part of that sound of the Arion sound is the Hammond. Yeah. And they make a big deal about how the way they set up Joost Vandenbroek's keys, they set it up in a semicircle, but they have cameras everywhere and they have a big backsplash screen above the stage. And very often they're splashing to a top down of Joost. That's great. And I don't know if you guys remember this because you were too busy shitting on them at the time. But when we saw Leprous live, <laughs> Einar sets his keys because he's the keyboard player and the lead singer. They set his keys at the front of the stage. Everyone else is behind him. I would like to clarify for our listeners that I was not shitting on Leprous. <laughs> he, was, he was actually peeing on Leprous because he wanted to own the keyboard. I was there for Haken. You were there for Haken, and we walked out with very different opinions about the band. Yes, we, we were did. there for, for Bent Knee, but they didn't show up. Uh, yeah, know. well, they had a car wreck in Wyoming. 
Yeah, that whole thing was that was a train wreck. I mean, they they drove the the vans up at what like eight o'clock. I don't even think they got sound checks. They didn't get sound checks. Yeah, so it's, it's not Leprous's fault. I want to see him again. I do in a good theater. Yeah, good environment. But you know, that's that's the only other band that I can think of that does like front and center kind of keys like that. Well, so let me just ask you this: How many people do you know that play air keyboards? Uh, well, I don't know. You Besides do you and me, I was going to okay. say okay, two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there you go. Everybody plays fucking air guitar, right? Yeah. Well, it's much more interesting. Air keyboard just looks like you have a weird tick. Bands that I can think of that feature the keys in a way. One is a, a band that was a big draw of mine when I was a teenager in the '90s. It was a industrial band out of St. Louis called Gravity Kills. The keyboardist in that band, Doug Furley, he had a special keyboard stand created that pivoted in six degrees, and so he could like move his keyboard around. I don't know if it was necessarily so that you could see him play, but it was so that he could jump around and have kind of the same energy as the guitar players. Yeah. Craig, what was your experience playing in a band around keys? When I moved to Colorado in 85, I was young, stupid, had no money, and thought, I'm going to join a band. I met up with another guy who was my age, who was young, but less stupid and a good songwriter. But uh, we were two keyboard players, a bass player, and a drum machine. My punchline is, uh, nobody got laid. Except the drum machine. <laughs> Except the drum, the drum machine. machine. Drum machine went home with a woman, but it was, it was theft. It wasn't sex. This uh, one guy wrote a bunch of songs, and he was just a really awesome songwriter. And uh, we had some friends and we would do house parties and, you know, the bass player and the other keyboard player would program in sick beats. And we had a, one of the first TR-707 drum machines. So you guys were definitely keys front. Yeah, that's all we were. That's why we uh, got the uh, keytars, but we had Casio AZ-1s. And uh, we, we did dance moves and we were better than we realized. For about two years, we were playing just about every weekend. We played house parties it was a blast. And, you know, that was right around the time when, you know, wavetable synthesizers were happening, affordable samplers were happening. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, very synth heavy stuff, very funky. Uh, but still, to your point, Lee, one of the things that cured me of that itch was lugging all that shit around. Absolutely. Emacs weighed a ton. Uh, the M1 was not that bad, but, you know, you put it in a case, the case is another five, 10 pounds. Yep. Mm-hmm. I had an amp, so that's another 40, 50 pounds. Yep whole bunch of cables a mixer just yeah, it's a freaking pain in the ass, <laughs> pain in the ass. you know uh, the good news is uh, i met my wife at a gig oh sweet yeah so as we look forward with keys where do you guys think that keys are going in Prague in general and maybe even certain subgenres or, or important people that you think listeners should be listening to like up and coming or, or emerging uh pianists i'll go first man i think jem godfrey's the shit Yes. But dude, he's a great songwriter. His playing is stellar. He uses uh, all Korg equipment, as do I. We watched him reboot one live. Jem Godfrey, in the middle of a show, <laughs> his Korg Kronos decides to reboot. So they just stop, and he literally goes and lays down in front of his thing and goes, I'm going to have a wee bit of a nap, because this takes five minutes to reboot. Yeah, hey, let's do a clip, too. I don't think we've played anything by Frost yet.
That is Hyperventilate from their first album, Million Town. Great keyboard player. I put Jordan Rudis right up there. I mean, I think he's clearly one of the best keyboard players around. But I totally agree with Craig about Jim Godfrey with Frost. I think Tom Brislin in Kansas is really interesting, mm-hmm. especially the band The Sea Within. Mm. He does some really interesting things with The Sea Within as well. Of course, Diego Tejeda with Hagen. Yes. I think he's a killer keyboardist. And, you know, Neil Morris doesn't really spend a lot of time standing out like on keyboard solos and stuff. But my God, that guy can write like nobody's business. That is absolutely one of the most prolific musicians there is. Yeah. And then the last one I would put here is Gleb Kolyadin from I Am The Morning. Excellent pianist. And I'm looking forward to what he does in the future. Yeah, you, you already hit the one I was going to go on, which was Diego Tejeda. Um, as I've been listening to a lot more Haken recently, that's the yeah. thing that keeps jumping out at me. And even when we saw Haken and Leprous together, like I didn't really walk away really caring about Haken at the time, but I loved Diego. Yeah. He just, my jaw was hitting the floor that entire show. He's an awesome keyboardist. Super nice guy. Gave me a bunch of shit on the boat for drinking a white Russian. Andy's got a solo album out on Bandcamp called Phantasm. Diego does. Yep, Diego does. Oh, awesome. And then the last thing I'll say to watch for is the role of samplers in virtual instruments. We didn't really talk about samplers here because there is no sampler sound. But now with the power Mm -hmm. of PCs and what you can do with virtual instruments, there is so much more keyboard players can do now. Most of my writing now is involved with virtual instruments for acoustic guitar, distorted guitar, strings, just all kinds of stuff. And so watch out for what keyboard players can do in the future with things like movie scoring or game scoring, more production-oriented, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole virtual synth thing, I just started getting into that. And it's, it's like, uh, just quit your day job and just start doing that because you could just get so lost in it. It's so fun. Absolutely. Awesome, guys. I so love hearing you guys talk about stuff that you're passionate about. I I talked a little bit here, but I was mostly trying to be in listening mode because you guys are just a font of useless knowledge. As we always do, we like to end with some recommendations. So, Lee, what do you got as some recommendations for people who want to take this further? What I would recommend for people that want to explore more about keyboards in Prague is go listen to anything by Rachel Flowers. She is just an incredibly talented musician. She's blind, first of all. And she would do like entire passages of Emerson, Lake and Palmer, pretty much note for note. It was just unreal. But now she's gotten her own album. I think two albums now. And she was on the last cruise that Craig and I were on. We got to go listen to her talk. And she's just an incredible musician. So go listen to some Rachel Flowers. And how about you, Craig? Along those lines, uh, something we didn't cover in the episode, a group called Triumvirate. Around the time Mm -hmm. when Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was peaking, these guys were Emerson, Lake, and Palmer clones. The song Trilogy by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which was my Emerson, Lake, and Palmer gateway drug, play that next to the opening of the album Spartacus. They are so similar. It's kind of like the Beatles and the Ruttles, almost. You know, very... uh, (laughs) So it's like the store brand ELP. Yeah, it's the, the one without the nice cover. Uh, the music does stand on its own. Uh, Triumvirate and Illusions on a Double Dimple. Nice. And mine's kind of in a slightly different vein, but tied specifically to this episode. Eric Norlander and his band Rocket Scientists, they are a very much a keyboard and synth group. Um, and that's basically all he does. Cool. So as we exit, 
Don't forget, everyone, you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you want to show us some support, it's easy. Please subscribe on Podbean at UP3Show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to write a review wherever you're getting your podcasts. The reviews actually help prop shows up to the higher recommendations. We do also now have a coffee link on our Podbean page, so you can give us a little bit of financial support there. We would appreciate that to help pay for some of the hosting to make sure that we don't have to take old episodes down. And a final note here for you guys, we want to hear what your ideas are for content you'd like to hear us cover on the show. We've got our own ideas, but we want to give you guys what you want. So you can add us at UP3Show, as I mentioned, or any one of us individually. Just let us know what you guys would like to hear. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting every ounce you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We are in no way claiming the copyright of any music found in our samples and strongly recommend that you support these artists by buying their material or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together. Thanks, guys.